Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Braun Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Braun, and I'm so glad that you're joining us today. If this is your first time turning into the podcast, I want you to know that I'm a doctor of physical therapy, certified personal trainer, human movement specialist, and so much more. And my mission is to help you understand your health and fitness and eliminate the guesswork. The human body does not come with an owner's manual. However, I want you to be able to take charge of your health and fitness and learn and understand what is best for you and what you can do to help yourself achieve all of your goals in life. Today, I'm joined by Ruth Jane and Dr. Sierra Baines to help you understand glute training. So specifically the glute anatomy, what it takes to build and sculpt and shape your butt. Before we get to this amazing podcast episode, here's a quick word from some of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by CTM Band and CTM Recovery Products. These are the exact soft tissue recovery tools that I'm using on myself and with my patients day in and day out. CTM Band was founded by Dr. Kyle Bowling, a sports medicine practitioner who treats professional athletes, and he was a former guest on the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. You can check out his website at the link below and use the coupon code BRAWN10 to save 10% off your order from CTM Band. Ruth, Sierra, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. For those who aren't familiar with the two of you, would you mind sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, Ruth, why don't you start us off? Sure. So I have been training on and off for about 10 years now, which is crazy. So kind of just done everything. So I've done like weight training. I've done a little bit of powerlifting. Um, I even did like some capoeira, which is, which was super interesting. Um, but then I finally like settled down into my niche. That was like glute growth and, um, kind of helping women understand the anatomy and why they're not growing their glutes. So that's kind of what I specialize in. And I am currently a third year PT student. Um, always had a love for anatomy, phys, rehab. Um, I have a background in athletic training and strength and conditioning, personal training, group fitness. That's my jam. Love both those. Um, but I also similarly have been training for uh, just about a decade. I think about nine years. Um, I've tried it all as well. Um, CrossFit, HIIT workouts, uh, never really fell in love with the long endurance stuff. So I can't say I did any of that. But recently in the last few years, found my niche um, in bodybuilding and weight training. So should set to compete um, this spring, hopefully. Congratulations. That's really exciting stuff there. Thank so you. getting right into the glutes, since that's going to be the focus of today's episode, I feel like a lot of people really misunderstand where their glutes are and what they do. Sure, everyone knows where the butt is, but no one really seems to understand what it does. I had someone about a week ago doing prone hamstring curls, ask me why they weren't feeling it in the glutes. Um, and I just tried to simplify to them why the glutes are at the hip and bending the knee doesn't actually work them. 
Well, the glutes are as a whole are your largest like muscle group, right? In your body. And so they're a very powerful muscle. Um, they can produce a lot of force, um, but at the hip, you know, they help you extend your hips. So, you know, bringing your leg back, they can also other parts of the glute people think glute and they think it's one muscle. And there's really three muscles that are a part of it. You have the glute max, kind of the big guy when people think about the butt, then I call like upper butt, you know, the glute meat, it's, it's often popular these days to talk about as well. And then underneath the glute mean, you'll have the glute min, the glute minimus and the glute mean and glute min can help, um, abduct the hip or bring your leg outwards away from your body. And we can get into like different fibers, you know, what directions they go, but that it doesn't necessarily matter too much. Definitely bending your knee, flexing your knee, you know, that's not going to help much. <laughs> Right. And the glutes also help to rotate the hip, I believe. And that's a key role with squats and deadlifts and those kind of movements as well. Because obviously, when we think about kicking our leg back, that's great when our leg is up in the air. But that function kind of changes a little bit when we're talking about a what we call a closed chain movement, where our feet are in contact with the ground, something like a squat uh, or a deadlift. And I believe uh, you can, either of you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they play a role too in tilting the pelvis forward and back. For sure, right. it can help uh, to create a pelvic tilt. Right. So then we get that posterior pelvic tilt moment as well. And yeah. what's really interesting too is a lot of people don't understand that the glutes share a common attachment site to so many other muscles, right? The glutes attached to the sacrum, the lats attached to the sacrum, uh, your deep six external rotators, so your piriformis, uh, gemellus, obturator muscles, all these different things are right there. So there's a ton of muscles crammed in this small little area. A lot of people will also, um, when we talk about hip extension as one of the roles for the glutes, a lot of people will also think hamstrings, hamstrings also help to extend the hip. And that's a muscle group that a lot of people will say they feel working when their glutes aren't. You know, I feel it in my hamstrings, but not my glutes. Uh, so when it comes to just overall training mistakes and people not feeling it in their glutes, uh, how do either of you uh, cue your clients to kind of feel it in their glutes more and shut off their hamstrings and turn on their butt, so to speak? Um, I think it all kind of comes down to creating the mind-muscle connection. So a lot of people struggle with that because they don't. I feel like they don't really use their glutes on a regular day-to-day -day basis. So it's just hard to like. Uh, I feel like a lot of people are quad dominant basically. So they let their quads or like their hamstrings take over. But I think it is just creating that mind-muscle connection, and that could take some time. You know, you could do like the banded workouts. I find those are super helpful to help people um, create that connection because then it'll kind of warm up the glutes so that you kind of already created that slight connection with them before your workout. Yeah, I think I take a very similar approach to Ruth. Um, I, I tend to, if they're really not feeling it, I just worked with a ton of uh, soccer players the last several months and soccer players, runners, endurance athletes tend to be, as I call them, leg dominant, their quad or hamstring dominant and really have no, uh, they lack, as she mentioned, that mind muscle connection. So 
what I tend to do is I'll start with like activation exercises that isolate the glutes in particular. So instead of going right into a compound movement, you know, say I want them to perform a squat or a hip extension, any, any sort of motion like that, or deadlift, I'm going to start with, you know, just abduction exercises, band work, um, standing, you know, exercises, balance, those kinds of things that will activate the muscle group before we, you know, translate into the bigger compound movements. You brought up a great point there in that you work with um, you're working with athletes and you were trying to increase their glute activation instead of their leg drive. Why are the glutes so essential for athletes and what is the overall you know, goal of glute training outside of just the aesthetic piece? Right. <laughs> I think for um, athletes in particular. And I mean, any person really, there's a huge component of stability that is missing that comes from the glutes itself, right? You just, you get more proximal to the hip joint. You're more stable at your leg. If you have a better base of support at your glutes. Um, I mean, a lot of the athletes I was working with had a lot of knee injuries, just impacts that their knees couldn't take with torsion, you know, cutting wrong or getting hit some way. And a lot of that, um, a lot of the recovery, you know, was based on increasing the strength of their glutes to keep their femur in a good position, make sure that their knees didn't get into those compromised positions, um, work on single leg stability, right? Most sports are played, um, you know, you're on one foot at some point, whether you're running or fielding a ball or hitting a ball or something like that. Um, so a lot of them lacks that because, you know, we become very quad and hamstring dominant very quickly, especially anything that involves running very much so. Right. Is there a certain part of the glutes that you target more when you're uh, training athletes like that? Um, definitely with activation exercises, I try to bias the glute med a little bit more. I find that that's the hardest for people to quote unquote feel, um, is just straight up hip abduction itself. So I'll do exercises, you know, we can get into this later, um, sideline or standing just to get those fibers turned on. Cause I find it because it is just smaller than the glute max, people have a harder time. Um, activating or isolating the glute meat itself. Right. Now, both you, Sierra, and Ruth mentioned that people tend to be very quad dominant. Uh, Ruth, why do you think that is? Why are people so leg dominant and not hip dominant? Uh, let's take just your general population uh, kind of individual, your student or your nine to five worker. Why are they not really feeling it in their glutes? Well, I personally think you use your, your quads a bit more. You're bending at your knees more throughout the day instead of like hinging at your hips. You're not really doing a lot of that throughout a day-to-day -day basis. So that's it's just more quad work. That's a common mistake I see a lot too, is people don't know how to hinge their hips. You exactly. try and teach someone how to do an RDL and they, they just don't know how to move their hips and not the rest of their body. It's uh, crazy how disconnected from that we've become as a society. And I can't help but wonder if, you know, all this time just being sedentary and sitting down instead of being up and moving and doing things plays a little bit of a role with that as well. On that topic of mistakes people make in glute training, though, I just mentioned that people don't know how to hinge their hips. Uh, do either of you, when we think of mistakes, do either of you like see anything or think of anything that you see people doing and you're just like cringing, like, no, that's that's not how you do that. That's not why.
have you ever seen someone doing something and you're just like, why are you doing that to train your glutes? Or there's, you know, there's a reason it's not working. I think there's lots of mistakes that people make, but I think the main thing I would say would be if we're talking exercises, I think RDLs would be one of the, the like hardest exercises for people to master because they, they like to just bend over instead of hinge at the hip. And that just creates a lot of lower back pain and you're not really pushing your hips back. You're just kind of bending over and a hundred percent. That's the number one exercise. That's probably the hardest to cue and teach people that aren't super um, knowledgeable of how to do it. Yeah. I would say um, that's a big one. Um, I think just compensations in general, anytime using the hips, we see a lot of compensations from the low back or, um, from losing like, you know, over, you know, excessive pelvic, posterior pelvic tilt. Um, you'll see compensations with the quads and the hammies, like we already talked about. My biggest personal pet peeve is, um, when a mini band or band around the knees or ankles is used improperly. Like I'll see somebody doing a hip bridge with a band around their knees and they aren't understanding that the band is for hip abduction, right? Bring the knees away, but you're trying to bias hip extension with your hip thrust. You gotta, gotta pick one or the other. In my opinion, uh, that activation of the, you know, abduction is not going to help you with your hip thrust personally. And EMG data does support that. So I think take the band off if you're doing a hip thrust. <laughs> Nobody should be doing banded hip thrust. Right. I'm so, off my soapbox now. Sorry. <laughs> so you mean to tell me that I can't solve all the world's problems with one of these? Really? Just put your name on it like everybody else. Sell it for eight bucks. <laughs> You'll pay off your student debt in no time. There was a... Um, that, that's kind of why bands get such a bad rep in the fitness world is because people just put it on everything like on oh, every yeah. exercise they're just like oh, i'm just gonna put a band on it or you do an entire exercise with bands and you're just like this is how i grow a muscle it's like that's not that's not how it works i do think marketing has definitely created you know improper use of bands and and you know we can uh, go off on on how uh media portrays you know you see somebody with a genetically gifted or perhaps you know yeah. angles help um, <laughs> and lighting and you know they look a certain way and they want to market their band or whatever and make it look like oh all I did was, was these band exercises and behind camera you know that person's done a lot of strength training resistance training to get that or maybe they are genetically gifted or maybe they just have a fantastic ability to extend their lumbar spine <laughs> for a good yeah. angle you know so I do think bands get a bad rap and I do believe they have a place in a workout as far as resistance training in particular. I really believe they're helpful at the beginning or the end of a workout. I don't really think they hold a place like in the middle I if we're looking for true hypertrophy and I'm sure you both would agree. Yeah, 100%. Right. So use them as a warm up or an activator or a pre-exhaust and then later on as like a finisher or something to add volume to your uh, workout. Totally. Yeah. There's a uh, picture I'm trying to find right now. I'll find it later. And when we uh, post this, I'll make sure to include the picture in the post of uh, the mini bands that are sold on Amazon. I forget what uh, brand they are, but they, they have a uh, diagram that shows different muscles. And one of the um, muscles was like very incorrectly labeled. Uh, I think it was like calves or something like that. 
and um, they showed a picture of like forearms. Um, and it just really rubbed me the wrong way because, you know, here you are trying to sell a product to promote someone's health and fitness and you can't even label the muscle correctly. So I will link to that in the little thing there, because those are the little things that just kind of make me laugh. Um, so we talked a little bit about mistakes people make when training. So how should people train their glutes? What exercises should they do? How often, how intense should they go? Uh, what, what should people be doing to build their butt? I definitely think you should be focusing on your compound lifts and kind of perfecting your form first. And then once you kind of, um, you have a good form, then you can up the weights. And then once you start upping the weights and um, and training a bit harder, then you'll start seeing growth. But definitely compounds are your number one. And then having, um, a unilateral um, exercise in there as well. And then um, like a finisher of some sort. But a lot of mistakes that people make is they try to train their glutes, just their glutes like three times a week. And they think that that's just gonna expedite their results when in reality, you're just fatiguing the muscle too much for it not to have enough time to grow. Um, I might nerd out a little here based on the EMG studies for which exercises to do. I'm pretty passionate about growing, growing the glutes um, as a competitor. It's, it's kind of, it's highly valued in the uh, division I'll be competing in, in all divisions for women, but um, I put on quite a bit of tissue and thankfully a lot of it was in my glutes this year. And, and a lot of it was thanks to like specific exercises we picked out. Um, but any sort of, and things surprise me with EMG studies, but a few things that surprise me is, you know, we think of the hip thrust, hip thrust has been for, I think a decade now we've accepted has some of the highest um, implications for hypertrophy. Um, a back, um, a back squat is similar. Um, again, a lot of like that MVIC, the uh, isometric contraction that they can study in EMGs studies um, but one that was really interesting for the glute max itself was a step up which i didn't really think of so if you yeah, think of yeah. like a weighted dumbbell step up i didn't do a ton of those um previously but they're super functional you know so if you're working with patients or clients i think they're awesome to include in all training um and then for the glute meat in particular um an abduction exercise that would bias maybe a standing leg or a supportive leg so if you're in like a side plank um, the knee that's down is actually the, the, uh, glute that's going to be activated versus, uh, if you have like someone do like a side plank clamshell, the one that's down is the one that's going to be more activated and has actually like 103% of, um, that voluntary, like isometric contraction, which is crazy because most people think do the clamshell and in comparison, the clamshell only has 77%. So I thought it was really interesting. In so many like rehab and even like prehab settings, they use that clamshell exercise all the time. And it's really not doing what people think it is, is it? No, no I think you're, yeah, you're better off doing any sort of like supportive stability exercise, which again, translates to more function. I don't know in what setting you would be doing a clamshell other than, you know, paint me like one of your French girls kind of setting. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but uh you know any sort of standing exercise have somebody stand up at the wall and just like hold that contraction you have them push one leg in towards the wall it's the standing leg that's actually the one that's supportive and has all that activation same thing in that side plank position um anything that incorporates more stability any of that strict abduction so it doesn't just have to be a clamshell i also think a lot of the times with the clamshells we don't provide enough resistance. You can put a band around you a little bit and, and that helps, um, but maybe not enough to target hypertrophy. You know, people, I think what gets lost in translation, especially in an Instagram workout is activation versus hypertrophy. What are we training for? Right. You also brought up a uh, EMG study. Um, I forget the title and the author, but I'm pretty sure it's the same study I looked at in the past. Um, they compared like 20 or 30 different uh, gym exercises and looked at which ones were the best for glute activation. And I think the lateral step up was the top exercise in that study. Um, and that's, that really surprised me as well. Um, all I can figure is you get a really deep hip flexion angle from that. And by doing that, you are maximally stretching the glutes. So then they really have to contract through a full range uh, in order to complete that movement. And I would imagine that higher the box is, the more glute activation you're going to get. Um, and I think another one that made the cut there was uh, the hex bar deadlift, which surprised me. They said that the hex bar deadlift had more uh, EMG activation than the sumo or the conventional deadlift. Uh, and I didn't quite grasp why that was, because we often think of the deadlift as such a hip dominant exercise compared to squats. Um, so it's interesting to see those findings now how come or how about from a frequency standpoint how often should people be training the glutes once a week or five times a week or every day or how often should they be uh, working them um i think it definitely depends on the person but typically if you just train really hard your glutes like once a week and that's plenty but if you like really want to maximize your growth then you can do um like a heavy day and then you can do like a volume day just so you're giving your body enough time to recover from the heavy load so maybe two two would be my max yeah i agree there i i train mine twice a week um and i think it all comes down to in, in any sort of programming the intensity at which you're training at which exercises you are doing which muscles you are prioritizing or biasing you may be doing different exercises on your two different days um i think training intensity is a huge variable more uh, more so than frequency um personally i think if you you could get away with just training them you know once a week if you're going you know all all the way up to but not past uh like you know failure um i think we're pretty decently i don't know if your listeners are super well acquainted with the um you know not training like training to failure, but just shy of it is actually more beneficial for hypertrophy than like actually training to failure. Um, but I think intensity is a little more important than frequency. Frequency and intensity are very powerful tools, as you mentioned. And it's important to remember that they're inversely related, right? If you're training your glutes four or five times a week, you're not going to get uh, nearly as intensive a workout in as opposed to training them once or twice a week. That recovery piece is huge and frequency and intensity combine to give you volume. So the 
uh, more intense the session is, uh, the lower the frequency should be. But overall, that correlates with volume, like I mentioned. Um, do either of you incorporate what we call trigger sessions in? So they're kind of shorter 10 to 20 minute workouts uh, that we design to kind of isolate a specific muscle group and just kind of keep the blood moving to it and promote function um, just to kind of keep things loose and keep the neural uh, connections to the muscle alive and well. Um, I was, I don't use it in my own training, but I use it with patient populations. Um, so, you know, somebody comes in with a specific injury, we're looking to target a specific set of muscles or group of, or, or muscle in particular, um, to help it as just one piece of their, of their rehab. Um, and you have a short amount of time to do it. So that's where we would inc incorporate. Um, I use with my athletes circuit training. So I'd pick, you know, three or four exercises that we're going to that applied to both the function and the um, activation of whatever I was trying to target and then just shuffle through those. Um, not like just three sets of 10 of the one exercise that we did circuit training to help with, you know, kind of the confusion, the carryover, motor learning, all sorts of things. But yeah, I, I use them with like a patient population. Awesome. How do you progress uh, patients and clients for that matter? Um, do you progress those trigger sessions at all, or how should uh, people who are at the gym working out progress their workouts? Should they just add more weight, or should they change the speed of their reps? What should people do to make exercises easier or harder? Well, I think you should always incorporate progressive overload in your um, program. So that could be increasing weight, that could be increasing sets, reps changing the tempo, you can do, you can do so many things without actually changing the exercise itself. So I, yeah, 100% agree with what Ruth just said about not needing to change the exercise itself. Um, I've been doing the same training for almost a full year, same exercises all year long. And I've seen massive, uh, growth, um, just by using the principles of progressive overload. I think we use the phrase progressive overload quite a bit as fitness and healthcare professionals. Um, but a nice like concrete rule that I'd come across, I think in my CSCS was, uh, you do like two reps, if you can do two reps over or see this, um, two reps over at the same weight for two sessions and you, that's consistent, then maybe it's time to increase the weight. So it's like valuing both, you know, what you're lifting, how you're lifting it, the number of reps that you're able to get. And I think just the quality of an exercise performance is huge too. If, you know, you can get the bar up, you know, or squat eight times, but your knees are a little wobbly. Well, let's say I can do the same, you know, weight next week for seven reps, but I have much better form. That to me is progressive overload. I've gotten better at this exercise. Right. Increasing the quality of the movement, hitting a better depth. Um, that, those are very key things. And I think that's important to remember too, when you talk about progressive overload, right? You know, we could shorten the range of motion, like take a squat, for example, we could start squatting to an 18 inch box instead of going down all the way. And we could probably move a lot more weight doing so. But the question then becomes, is that piece of overload worth it, right? Is it really going to benefit us by shortening the overall range of motion and changing the quality of the exercise uh, and increasing the weight? Or would it be better to stick with the full range of motion, keep with a high quality movement, even though it's a little bit less weight for, you know, starting off that quality piece, as you mentioned, is just so big. Um, so I cannot echo that enough. 
Um, I'm a huge fan as well of time under tension uh, training. So we do prolonged isometrics or really slow eccentrics. Um, this was something that my early clients got a heavy dose of. They were cursing me out for weeks. Um, we used to do barbell hip thrust iso holds. So we would throw, say, 225 on the bar, and they would hold it for 30 seconds. And then, you know, a few weeks later, it'd be 45 seconds. A few weeks later, it'd be 60 seconds. Just like people hold a plank, we were holding hip thrusts. And you, you start off in the first 10 to 15 seconds. Wow, they're easy. But before long, your whole legs, everything is shaking. And I kind of like to get that shaking response on an ISO hold because that's what we call neurologic confusion. So that's a point where the Golgi tendon organs and muscle spindles within your muscle are literally fighting over control of your muscles. One is saying we have too much force here and the other is saying, no, we're fine, keep going. Uh, and that piece is what allows us to overload our muscles from a neurologic perspective. So I've seen great results working with people using those prolonged holds and extreme time under tension training as well. Um, it's not pleasant per se, but boy, does it work. Um, not so much that long of an ISO hold. I'm not, not going to lie. That's kind of sounds like hell, but <laughs> I usually just do either two to five seconds after each rep if I am incorporating it. And that, that seems to be plenty. Yeah, I've done similar um, shorter holds. Again, that hold sounds awful. Um, I, I think it's important to remember too that, and this is obvious, you know, as we're talking about it, but that there's more than one way to train, you know, to, for hypertrophy. And um, I think it's important remembering like with your clients or your patients, whatever is interesting to them too, is also having that buy-in that, oh, this exercise is fun or I like it. You know, it doesn't, they don't have to like every single thing that you're doing, but there are many ways to, you know, increase activation and increase strength gains across the board. That's why there's so many things out there that are sold for, you know, programming. So, right. Yeah. That's the importance of finding a good coach or trainer and getting a individualized program, right? You will waste so much time and so much energy trying to figure out the best program for you. if you don't have any experience and it helps a lot to have someone who's worked with people similar to you, or maybe they themselves were in a spot similar to you, and they can really expedite that process for you because they've known what works because they've worked with people similar to you in the past. Um, that was something that I think we've all uh, kind of learned as we go through things. You both mentioned that you tried so many different kind of pieces or components of fitness, and I can really relate with you there. Uh, there was a time when I was doing like sets of 25 um, band resisted shrugs because I wanted bigger traps, but I was doing them every single day. And I really knew nothing about, you know, muscle growth at the time. Like, you know, obviously doing sets of 25 repetitions with bands every single day wasn't going to be enough to elicit uh, muscle growth. So do yourselves the favor if you're listening, uh, save yourself some time and reach out to any of the three of us, uh, because we'd all be happy to work with you and help you grow your glutes. When it comes to putting the pieces together here, what would a typical glute workout or glute focused workout look like for either of you? Specifically, what I like to do is um, I do like to have at least one or two compound lifts at the beginning and then um, a single leg and then like a like a finisher. So kind of what that looks like, what I find is the best is 
I'll do a compound such as like a cast glute bridge or a step up um, or even um, a, glute, a hip bias squat. I find those three are super, super beneficial. Um, and then just kind of really focusing on those, like making those your focus of the workout. And then doing a single leg exercise, like a Bulgarian split squat, but doing a little bit of a variation with it. So instead of a lot of people do it with the bench, I think that's a little bit too high for your hip to fully um, be set back. So I like to do, um, I like to put a platform that's about six inches off the ground. And I find that you get more glute um, activation doing that. And then any accessory movement, really, anything that uh, they really like. So I like to do glute, um, glute med kickbacks. Those are super awesome. And then I use that as a finisher as well. Yeah, I similarly like to have a couple compound movements at the beginning of a workout and just to clarify it. So, you know, when you're, when you have the most amount of energy kind of to give in your workout, you can, um, we tend to see the biggest hypertrophy gains from those compound movements. They're also tend to be pretty functional if you're doing something like a squat or a deadlift. Um, and so they're most important to do at that time in your workout. But prior to that, um, like to throw in a little bit of like hip mobility work, um, just as much as we need strength and stability, we need mobility as well. And then my activation exercises, that's where I bring in the band personally uh, for myself, for my clients um, or patients, uh, band work at the beginning and nothing to fatigue, right? And sometimes I'll even do an exercise or two. Uh, maybe it's like the hip abduction machine, right? Lighter, lighter, just to get some blood flow, muscles activate, everything warmed up and then hit the compound lifts. Um, I really like to personally work up into like two or three working sets. So I'll do some lighter work before, you know, again, non-fatiguing, maybe if my working sets are somewhere between six and eight reps, then I'm going to warm up with, uh, like a, something light with 10 reps and then move into maybe a little bit heavier at eight ish reps. Again, non-fatiguing as you get closer and closer to your working weight, you, you know, only, only have a couple reps, you kind of quote unquote, feel the weight and then get into my working sets. Um, after that, you should be pretty fatigued. Like I said, I really value intensity. So I personally do like five or six exercises per workout, um, with working sets and, after the compound lifts, then kind of get into the ISO stuff. So whether it's unilateral movement or straight abduction or a burnout, um, all of those are really good tools just to promote that. Uh, you know, we, we hear the, the term like pump of a muscle. Well, the pump is actually that muscle swelling is so important for hypertrophy. Um, it's not just really cool because you drink pre-workout and your butt looks good after <laughs> it's, it actually like does translate to strength gain. So anything that works for your particular individual to increase that muscle swelling is awesome. So what's your preferred way to get a good pump then after a workout? Um, I really like high rep, any sort of like, I don't know if you've seen a frog hip thrust where your feet are together, kind of extra rotation. I like that one or any sort of burnout on a, like a machine. I like machine work for burnouts. You, if, especially if you can drop the weight down, drop sets. That's a good, uh, good piece of advice there. Um, you saying frog pumps just made me think back to a, um, old strength coach that was at the college that, um, made all of the men's teams do, uh, frog pumps in the gym. And, uh, it, it was a slightly uncomfortable place to work out for a slight period of time. I'm sure. 
<laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Hey, you do do us, you know, a couple sets of 20 frog pumps after a, a glute workout. Make sure it's, resi- uh, you know, weighted and then tell me about your pump afterwards. <laughs> and make sure no one's around and watching. Nobody's around. <laughs> <laughs> and then take all your selfies and TikTok videos and all that sort of thing afterwards too, right? Totally. I think studies actually show that the more pictures and TikTok videos you take, the bigger your glutes get. Um, I think that's scientifically proven. <laughs> so um, I have not jumped on that trend yet, but may- maybe I'll have to, you know? Yeah. If you start to struggle, there you go. Yeah. Um, so training is key for glutes, but obviously there's other variables that impact the overall strength and size that you get from training, uh, such as nutrition. Uh, have either of you seen any nutrition mistakes that people are making, or is there any general nutrition advice that you tend to offer to your clients to help them uh, build their butt? I think the biggest mistake that people make is that they're just not eating in a uh, caloric surplus. And they're, they're training, they're training hard enough, but they're just not eating enough. So I think that's the biggest mistake that I find people do. Um, and then also a lot of people are scared of carbs for, uh, for whatever reason, but they don't know that carbs and protein is going to be the main factor of your, um, your results when it comes to like building muscle. So Similar train of thought post-workout nutrition is really important. Um, you know, it's been pretty standardized that, oh, protein shake after workout's good for you. Well, we, you also need to replenish the, um, glycogen stores, right? You need protein and carb sources after a workout. Um, under eating is a huge thing, especially in women. Um, and it's just a lack of education on, you know, how much you're burning throughout your day, then through a workout, Um, and in order, you know, the, the tone look, we could, we could talk for three hours about nutrition. Um, I'm not a, you know, dietitian, but, you know, as a, as a SPT, we can give, you know, generalized advice and then anecdotally have my own, but, um, you know, eating in a surplus, finding out what that is, you're going to see huge, not only just gains in like the physical muscle, but your energy is going to be better. So you're going to produce, you know, better workouts. Um, the other thing I think is huge is, uh, recovery, um, training over training, um, especially if you are, you know, doing resistance training and then doing a bunch of cardio afterwards and, um, you know, maybe taking active rest days and as much as we want to promote health and wellness, you know, a recovery day, maybe once a week is, is okay. Twice a week, if that works for you, you know, whatever your body needs, every person is different. What works for me may not work for you, but rest, uh, for that muscle group, recovering, sleeping enough is huge. If we just, if we all got seven, eight hours of sleep, a lot of our problems would, would probably dissipate, dissipate a little. I would have to agree with you there. You mentioned cardio as well. Does cardio build your butt? Like can people jump on a stair machine for 30, 40 minutes and grow their glutes. Is it that easy? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it grows your glutes. If uh, I think the misconception is that cardio um, often helps you with fat loss. And so with fat loss, you'll see the definition of muscle better. And maybe then it looks like you got a butt, but it doesn't actually do if you're no matter how you're doing it, whether through training or whether through food, um, and nutrition, if you are in, uh, a caloric deficit, you're going to be losing fat mass most likely. And so you're going to look better and you will not be putting on muscle mass. It just won't happen. Right. 
and mm -hmm. there are very effective ways to get a cardio intensive workout in while building your butt. Uh, some of my favorite ones from some of the programs we've made uh, include sled pushes, interval work, and heavy kettlebell swings. Uh, if you haven't read some of the original kettlebell books uh, that came out of Russia, kettlebells were meant to be heavy. Uh, and for some reason, we now use them in lightweight form and people will swing around like a 15 pound kettlebell in a kettlebell swing. And you look at the motion, right? It's that pelvic tilt, similar, similar to a RDL, hip extension, hip drive. And if we can RDL two, 300 pounds, we should not be swinging a 15, 20 pound kettlebell. It's not doing anything for us. So go to the gym, pick a heavy kettlebell and swing it for 10 to 15 reps and then pair that with a sprint or a sled push or a similar kind of high uh, aerobic demand um, movement. And you'll be amazed at the uh, cardiovascular benefits you get from that, especially when you put it in a interval format. So uh, either repetitions or time on time off. Uh, and you could also do that with walking lunges. Um, that's one of our other favorite finishers is the death by walking lunge. Uh, and you can make that a drop set very easily. Um, or you could even, uh, I think it was Ben Greenfield uh, actually trained for a 5k or 10k or obstacle course race, some kind of endurance event by doing nothing but walking lunges. Like he was doing 800 meters of walking lunges, then 1200, then 1600. Like it was insane how many of these exercises he was doing, uh, but it worked for him. So just kind of rethink the way you approach cardio and you don't necessarily have to do that low intensity, steady state stuff. Look at the high intensity stuff, look to incorporate weights in it, and then you can get the benefits of both worlds. Is there anything else that either of you want to share with those listening about glute training and building their butt? I mean, I think we covered a lot of the basics. I think that, um, you know, all this go on for hours about building any sort of muscle group, building your butt. I think the point you made earlier um, about just having a specialized plan that is individual to somebody is huge. There are so many variables in training. You know, what does your day-to-day -day look like? What are you eating? How are you recovering? Um, what are your training sessions look like? What equipment do you have available? You know, what, um, there's so many things that go into your performance and then your results that is more than just hey do this exercise because there's six slides on instagram and it says you should and a lot of us have you know a lot of valuable information as to help how to help get there uh, but ultimately like an individualized approach is going to be the best one so if people can find that on their own it's definitely possible or if you can connect with somebody that can help you out that's awesome too um, but just uh, say and you know anything that we said or anything that anybody else puts out um, on socials or whatever is it's not all a one size fits all. It's not going to work for everybody. And I think that's important to remember. Yeah, I definitely agree. I find if you are able to find a coach that kind of has similar goals as you and trains similar people with the same kind of goals, then I think you would really benefit and save some time. And then even just if it's like a 12 week program, that you're training with this person, you will learn a lot of information. And then from there, you can kind of do your own thing. But I definitely think finding the coach in the beginning will save you a lot of time and money. So mm -hmm. completely agree. And to even bring that point home further, I think Sierra, you yourself 
have a coach for competition prep? I do have a coach and she writes my training programs. And um, I mean, I write other people's training programs, but it's helpful to stay accountable. And she knows what objectively what my body needs. You know, I'm a almost finished with my physical therapy degree. And I still think it's important that I have a coach. And I think ever, anyone, you know, what whatever level you're at, there's always somebody that's going to be doing has a little more expertise than you is doing more than you. And it's also good to have an objective set of eyes on you. So I am all for having a coach. Completely agree. Well, Ruth, Sierra, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show today and yeah. talking about glute training. Hopefully some of our listeners really took some of the advice that you shared uh, to heart and they'll probably be reaching out to you on social media or email in the future. So thank you again. Of course. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy hearing it. Additionally, if you want to help support this podcast and keep future episodes going, please check out our links below where you can support us directly or through engaging in any of our affiliate marketing links. Last, please make sure you check us out on social media at Braun Body and leave a five-star review, especially if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify.